Good morning. Welcome again to Morning Devotions. Thank you again so much for our time together. I was, and you have to know me, I, I'm not a big Facebook person. Sister Bev is the Facebook guru. If I need something from Facebook, I ask Sister Bev. But this morning I was just looking for just a second, a few minutes ago, just when you were just beginning to come on, and I saw all of our old friends there. I saw the Evidenti family, Lita and her husband. They walked with us for over 40 years. Lita, welcome this morning. Daniela, welcome this morning. Your knees be strong in Jesus' name. We've walked through many things together as a congregation. It's fascinating to go back and study the book of Deuteronomy where it says, God took one nation and made another nation with signs and wonders and testings and trials. There are things that you go through that build you together as a people. As a congregation, we walk through economic crises in building programs in the middle of them. We walk through coup d'etats. We walk through all these things. This is just one more. I was smiling this morning thinking, you know, Holy Week always gets very quiet, but this has been the longest Holy Week we have ever had. We have a pre-Holy Week, we have a Holy Week, and we have a post-Holy Week. But this too shall soon pass, and it will be well with you, and life will be back, and everybody keeps saying that the world has changed forever. And you know what? It may have, but God does not change. The same promises of God are still true. The same God who made his promises is faithful to those promises. Yes, life changes. Yes, the world changes. But God is our rock. We can build our life upon him. He's our rock. He's our refuge. We can build our life upon him. He never changes. So I beg of you today, please don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of anything that's coming. Please just leave all that alone and just recognize God is with us. And he says, I, the Lord, do not change. He just doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when you hear all the talk about the world, there's going to be a new normal and the world has changed and it will never go back to the way it was, eh, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. I don't know. But I know that it really doesn't matter because God is with us and he doesn't change. Father, let there be no fear in the hearts of any of your sons and daughters this morning. As they hear the news as they, and they hear people speculate, Father, it's so easy for fear to come into our hearts because of the words of others. They look at Facebook, they look at Twitter, they look at Instagram, they listen to the news, they, oh, Father, there's so many competing voices out there. And it seems that the loudest ones are often the wrongest ones. Father, I ask in Jesus' name, just let there be a calmness and a rest in the hearts of your people today. Lord, you are our rock. You are our refuge. Let there just be a calmness and a rest that you've got this, Lord, that whatever comes, you will never leave us. You will never fail us. You will never forsake us. <laughs> we love you, Father. Receive our worship now, Lord, as we come into your presence. And Lord, this day we choose to rejoice because this is the day that you have made. You've given us another day. You gave us sleep last night. You've given us another day today. And we choose to rejoice in it in Jesus' name. All right, let's stand with me and let's worship the Lord together. Oh, oh. 
Psalms chapter 91. Psalms 91, beginning with verse 1. And you know, I tell you this every day. When I walk into a challenge, God always gives me a passage of scripture. In early January, I got up one morning and was praying, and God spoke to my heart and said, there are some difficult days ahead. That's why you notice my attitude was a little more resigned to, to, to all going off. Sister Bev was up there, no, 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 and I was kind of resigned to it. I thought, is this what God is talking to me about? And I began to talk to you about Psalms 91. Little did I know that Ta'al would just sputter out, and this silly little virus that nobody can see would shut down two-thirds of the world. But this is the passage that God gave me to walk through this passage, walk through this season with. And so every morning and every evening, I read it to you. And I know it might almost sound trite to you now, but at some point, it clicks in. <laughs> at some point, it clicks in. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you. Notice, you don't command the angels. Angels are messengers of God. They're not our messengers. He will command his angels concerning you. Not he might. He will. God has commanded angels about your life. You just need to sit back and think about that today. These incredibly powerful spirit beings have been commanded by God concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Some of you are going, you know, maybe I won't live very long. <sighs> Excuse me. He has promised to satisfy you with a long life. A long life. Not 50 years and pot die. Well, you know, you're a senior, and you know the seniors are all dying of the coronavirus. Not you. You will live and not die, declare the glory of the Lord. You just need to understand the promises of God are true. Now, thank you for all of the help that you've been giving us and sending in all of these wonderful, wonderful testimonies. Please keep them coming. Some we're using on Facebook. Some we're putting on air. Please just sit down with a cell phone, and it doesn't matter what language you use, Tagalog, Ilocano, Cebuano, whatever. Maybe not Chabacano, okay? But some of the major dialects, because, you know, sometimes there are people that need to hear it where they came from. 
We've got people watching from Luwag, and you know, you share your testimony in in Ilocano. Just a second. Say hello to everybody, Brother John. Well, they'll get to see everybody tonight. I'll call you later, Brother John. Yes, sir. Thank you. God bless you. <laughs> well, that was a nice, pleasant surprise. But getting back to this, it doesn't matter what dialect or language it's in. Share with us your testimony. Now, right now, I'm not looking for the big ones. I'm looking for things where everybody's living, especially the people in greatest need. So I want to challenge you, please. You've got testimonies of how God's putting food on the table. Send them in. Just take a little video on your phone. Send them in. We'll edit them together and we'll get them out. Some will go on Facebook. Some will go here on the shows in the morning or the evening. And we'll get this out and encourage people. But right now, Brother Jong has a testimony for us. Hello, COP. Hello, COP. Sister Nena Baguio po. Napakabait po ng Panginoon. Ang sa amin pong business, water refilling station, ay tuloy-tuloy pa rin po. At nadagdagan po po ang aming delivery ngayon. Higit pa po sa kalahati ang naidagdag. Kaya nakakatuwa po. Sa totoo po, nadoble ang kita namin ngayon. Doon naman po sa apartment, sabi ko po doon sa mga boarders na wag na po munang magbayad. Pero sabi po niya, ay hindi raw po magbabayad daw po sila. Pinagawa kong verse na Matthew 6.33 na Seg first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Dahil po sa ganda ng kita, lagi pong naka-separate na po yung para sa tithes. Nakalagay na po yun sa sobre. Kahitin na ako na maibigay namin sa Panginoon. Kaya COP, lagi tayong maniwala na we have a faithful God. God bless, COP. I should give you a funny story about Brother John. He's also in lockdown. And his children will bring food and leave it in the garage on a table. And then he goes out and sanitizes it and brings it in. But it's just him and Sister Pat in their house. And he's cleaning toilets and washing things and vacuuming and cooking and washing dishes and taking care of Sister Pat. And I said, well, Brother Johnny, you're about to go crazy. He said, oh, no, I'm enjoying being home. He said, most of my life, I was three weeks in hotels and one week home. He said, I'm so enjoying being home and being with Sister Pat. And I thought, you know what? There's a happily married man. Brother John is, what, 84 years old now? And he's still loving and enjoying his wife. Gentlemen, all of us should do that. All right. Right now, I want us to pick up in Luke chapter 20. We're going to finish chapter 20 today, beginning with verse 27. Then came to him, they came to Jesus, some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. And they ask him a question. Now, first thing we need to understand is who these people are. We know that there are Pharisees. We know there are Sadducees. We know there are Herodians. Now, the Herodians was more of a quasi-political religious denomination that were very pro-Roman government. The Pharisees, they would be like the strict fundamentalists of the Jews. They were a theological denomination. But now the Sadducees, they're not so much a denomination as they are a class of people. And really, that's the only way to say it, a class of people. Yes, they have a theology. And yes, in one sense, they are a denomination. 
but in another very real sense, they're a class of people. The Sadducees were the nobility left over from the Hasmonean dynasty. This was the ruling class of Jews in between Malachi and Matthew. They'd been conquered by Rome about 150, 180 years before the time of Jesus. And what had evolved slowly over a period of time was a working relationship between the Roman government and these old ancient nobility of the people of Israel. Now, this Hasmonean class, they were all blue bloods. They lived in the wealthy Forbes Park, Despodemius village of, of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they were literally what we would call today the ruling class, okay? Now, so again, you don't join the Sadducees. You don't go to a theological seminary, adopt a theology, and become a Sadducee. You have to be born a blue blood. You have to be born into this nobility. Now, the this class of people, this, this upper class of people, they denied there is a resurrection. And so they came to Jesus with a question. Now, a couple of things I want you to see about that. First of all, have you ever noticed that the elites who want no one to question, they want no accountability in their life for their sinful lifestyle, have you ever noticed they don't ever want there to be a resurrection? They don't want there to be a life after death? You, you look around the world today and you see the elite class who want no accountability for their lifestyle. They don't believe in life after death. They almost mock religion today. They, they, they make fun of us for our beliefs because they don't want there to be a resurrection from the dead because that means there's a real hell. That means there's a real heaven. That means there's an accountability for their lifestyle. And they did not reject it. They believed that everything in this life is, that's it. Enjoy your life and then you cease to exist. So they denied that there was a resurrection. And they came to Jesus with a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a brother's brother dies, having no wife but no having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up an offspring for his brother. Now, did Moses write that? Yes, Moses wrote that. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her, and likewise all seven, and left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. All right. First of all, I want you to notice where false doctrine comes from. It does not come from the truth of Scripture. It comes from man's application of Scripture. Now, now here is a thing that you just you need to get into your head. People will quote scripture, and the scripture is true. But when they make application of it, that's where the faults begins to come in. Because human logic, human logic enters in, and forgive me, human logic is not true. It's just, it's just, it is not a good source of doctrine. As long as they were quoting Moses, they were fine. But when they brought their own ideas and their own philosophy in and tried to justify what they believed... Oh, now all of a sudden there's contradictions in Scripture. This thing cannot be. Okay, so false is not found in the truth of the Scripture. Falsehoods are found in the application of Scripture. And Jesus said to them, verse 34, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now that age refers to this eschatological age, this prophetic age that we live in right now. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age 
and to the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now he said, listen, you have to understand, this age and the age to come are very different. In this age, we are commanded to multiply and fill the earth. We are a, a race of people. But in the age to come, we will neither marry nor give it in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. All right. So when we die and we are raised from the dead and we have our physical bodies back after the rapture and we come back to this world in the millennium, we, ha we will have some type of a physical corporal being after the rapture, okay? Our body is resurrected into immortality and it will no longer be corruptible. There's a lot of teaching on that in Thessalonians. But there's one thing that will change. The sex organs will be gone. Our incorruptible body will no longer have sex organs. We will not marry nor be given in marriage. Now, the reason for that is we become like the angels. We become a company and not a race. Let me say that again. We become a company and not a race. We have attained to the resurrection of the dead by our choices. We have no right to give birth to somebody else that has a free will. Now, there will be people born during the uh, millennial kingdom, people that are still alive on earth. There will be people that will born, be born. The earth will repopulate over a thousand years. But they will also have to make a choice to follow Jesus at the end of the millennium when Satan is released from the bottomless pit. So understand, a lot of complicated things here, but understand, this is not about sex and filling the earth anymore. This is, we have made a choice to be in heaven for eternity with God. We have accepted what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. We become a company. No longer are we a race that multiplies and fills the earth. But that the dead are raised, he said, now let's just deal with your real issue here. You want to make fun of a doctrine. He said, but the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush when he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He did, now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the God of living, for all live to him. He didn't say God was the God of Abraham, God was the God of Isaac. He said he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Then some of the scribes, now this is a different group of people. Scribes come more from the Pharisee group, all right? but they are a very special group of people who they're the ones who make copies of the Bible. They're very meticulous, detail-oriented people. They literally copy word for word, every jot, every tittle, every accent mark, so to speak, and they copy the Bible word for word onto scrolls, okay? That is their job. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. <laughs> People always like it when you agree with them, okay? So the scribes have just seen Jesus put the Sadducees, put this elite ruling class in their place theologically, and they're very pleased with it. Then some of the scribes said, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dare to ask him any question. But he said to them, now he turns his attention to the scribes. He said, great, you, you really agreed with me there on the resurrection. Now let's talk about you. But he said to them, the scribes, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? <laughs> so he said, listen, the Sadducees had their problem with what they thought was a contradiction of Scripture. You also have your problem with what you think is a contradiction of Scripture. But there's really no contradiction at all. Now, let me just throw this out at you, please. Many times as you read the Bible, it looks like there are contradictions. There are not contradictions. There's just a lack of understanding on our part. Let me say that again. There are no contradictions. There's just a lack of understanding on our part. This is not like a regular book, all right? So I've just learned when I see things that seem to contradict each other, I just go, you know what? I just haven't learned enough yet. And I keep my heart in submission and not my heart in digging to find fault. And in the hearing of all those people, he said to his disciples, beware the scribes. Now, he's challenging these people who just supported him and agreed with him. He said, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, I want you to notice some things here. This is, if the Sadducees are the ruling class, the scribes and the Pharisees, especially the scribes, they would be what I would call the religious, especially the scribes, they would be the religious ruling class. I mean, these are the guys, they know the law of Moses. All they do all day long is make copies of the word of God. So they have a very high position in society. It's not a biblical office. It's, it's a man-made office. You could call them the professional printers of their day. But in that culture, it was an elite status. And he said, I want you to notice these guys. He said, beware of them. He said, beware of the religious ruling class. He said, they like to walk around in long robes. In other words, they dress to be noticed. They dress for success. <laughs> Have you ever noticed when God put together the clothes for the Levitical priesthood, especially for Aaron and his family, it wasn't about dressing for success. It wasn't about dressing to be noticed. It was to dress for respect and dress for ministry. The, the breastplate that was over them with the precious stones, that wasn't about looking fancy, wearing a giant diamond ring on your finger. That was about keeping the names of the tribes of Israel across your chest. This was the breastplate of the breastpiece of decision. So that whenever they made decision, the people were on their heart. Aaron and his sons were to dress not for success, not to be noticed. They were to dress for respect and they were to be dress for ministry. Dress for respect and dress for ministry. Now, you know, I, I see these people today with what I call pastoral costumes. They change their costume. Uh, you know, this week they're wearing hats and giant glasses, even though they don't need glasses. And they're, they're, they're dressing like celebrities from Hollywood. It's, it's, it's dressing to be an influencer. It's dressing to entertain. That's not our role as pastors. But we're not, we're not celebrity pastors. We don't, we don't put on pastoral costumes to, to be noticed and try to look like the, the coolest nerd or the, the coolest dude. And he said, secondly, they love greetings in the marketplaces. They love to be noticed. 
you know what? Jesus didn't go around wanting to be noticed. Now, he got noticed, but Jesus did not live his life to be noticed by everybody. And they loved the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor. So they dressed to be noticed. They wanted to be the center of attention. And they desired honor. Jesus looked for none of those three from people. And leaders, that, that is our role today. My, my grandpa used to say it in a very old-fashioned way. He said, David, when you stand behind the holy desk, that's what grandpa called the pulpit, the holy desk. He said, your goal is to hide behind the cross. Your goal is to so present Jesus that people don't notice what you're wearing and what you look like. They, they're listening to what you have to say. They're, they're, they're focused on the Jesus that you are presenting. And that's, you know, Grandpa's words still ring in my heart today. So again, the scribes, the religious ruling class, they dressed to be noticed, they wanted to be the center of attention, and they desired honor. But he said the reality of it is they devour widows' houses. He said, you know what, they've, they've got a whole bunch of money out there loaned out to people, and they're taking over the homes of the widows. They're driving them out of their homes. <laughs> and for a pretense, make long prayers. How many times did Jesus complain about people praying? They, they wanted to be noticed for their prayers. He said, they will receive greater condemnation. Now, there's a truth. There is the truth. They will receive greater condemnation. Now, he continues in verse 21, chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, this is during that first Holy Week. Jesus watched the offering. Now, you know, I, I know people like to act like Jesus didn't care anything about the offerings and things, but he very much did. See, part of Passover was it was one of those feasts that the people were to come and to bring an offering before the Lord. So he, he stood there because this is part of what God expected. When you come to my house, you bring an offering. And so he watched them putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow. Now, you think, well, Jesus, why didn't you stop her? She's poor. You know, Jesus, where's your compassion? Well, Jesus had compassion, but he wasn't walking in pity. He was walking in compassion, and there's a difference. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now, I'm just going to stop there for a minute because you need to get a hold of this. The human heart of pity will actually stop the blessings of God in people's lives. When I first became your pastor 40 years ago, and I watched our people begin to tithe and to sow seed, and I saw the poverty that some of our people came from as I visited their homes, the hardest thing for me in the universe was to take an offering. I said, God, how can I, do you remember the first coconut shell offering? That was the hardest thing in the universe for me. How, how can I ask these people who have nothing to give? And one of the things I had to learn, Jesus said, give and it shall be given unto you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. That generosity is what brings the blessings of heaven into lives. So you and I can look with pity upon people who are poor and say they shouldn't give anything, only the rich should give. That's what I would call socialized giving. <laughs> okay, you're, you're thinking the rich should support the work of God and the poor should do nothing. But Jesus didn't act like that because he wanted people to prosper. 
He's the one who taught us, give and it shall be given unto you, all right? So Jesus saw this poor widow and he allowed her, he stood there and watched as she put in two small copper coins and then he turned to everybody. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. He said, would you look at the generosity of this woman? He not only did not stop her, he bragged on her for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty she out of her poverty, she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now, I look upon you as a congregation today, and I remember your homes. Please, I've visited your homes. I I remember where we came from, and I see what God has done for you today. So I I look at the new generation that has come in among us. Many of them are poor because we preach the gospel to the poor. We're not called to have a homogeneous church of rich people. We we preach the gospel to the poor, and we bring them into the abundant life that God wants them to have. But part of the way we do that is we humble ourselves, and we allow them to give. We sit back and watch them sacrifice all they have to build God's house. We sit back and we watch them sow a seed to feed people that are even poorer than they are. And as we watch their generosity, know that Jesus is watching their generosity. And Jesus will bless them abundantly beyond anything you and I could ever ask or imagine. So in these hard days right now, I'm excited. I've been challenging some of you to do the widow's offering. The, the, remember the widow that supported Elijah? She, she sowed a seed every day. She cooked food for Elijah every day. So a widow's offering. Every day, just a daily seed. Maybe it's one peso, maybe it's five pesos, but every day you have a box and you put in a daily seed and watch God feed your family through this whole thing. So yes, I will, I will continue to encourage the poor to sow a seed. I will continue to encourage the poor to bring their tithe before the Lord. Even though in my heart it hurts because I know they lack, but I also know that God will provide more than I could ever even think about. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some time in worship. Every 
We're starting a new book in the Old Testament day, the book of Judges. You say, Pastor, you always go slower in the Gospels than you do in other places. Yeah, I really, really like the words of Jesus because that is exactly how God thinks. And when you begin to see the mind of Jesus, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you begin to penetrate how Jesus thinks, it's, it's amazing. All right, let's get into Judges today. Judges chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. At the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. But now notice, they didn't ask for a leader. They just asked who's going to lead the fight. Now, here's one of my question marks, all right? We're entering into what is called the season of the judges, or the period of the judges, where different judges are raised up to lead Israel. When Moses died... God had a successor chosen for Moses by the name of Joshua. When Joshua died, there is no successor. And it seems that the tribes just kind of splintered and did their own things, every tribe going their own way. and There was no more unity as a nation. So one of the question marks that I have as a study to do one day is why did Israel divide up into these smaller tribal situations? Why did they not stay united as a nation and fight as a nation? Because you'll see as we go through this, they no longer fought as one army. They fought as little individual tribal armies. So it's one of those question marks I have. Who shall go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simon, or Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. Now, I don't see this happening with the other tribes. It seems that Judah and Simeon joined forces so that they could be victorious, and they were. But the others got beat a lot because they didn't help each other. Maybe we need to learn the truth that we're greater together than we are alone. Yes, we take individual responsibility for our inheritances, but 
we help each other. Only Simeon and Judah fought together. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Pezzarites in their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Bezek was the location. And they found Adonai Bezek. That was the king. Adonai Bezek means the Lord of Bezek. Adonai means Lord. They found Lord Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Now notice we're beginning to talk about Jerusalem. You're going to see this come out several times today. So they conquered Jerusalem. Now, they'd already killed the king of Jerusalem long before, but now's the first time they actually conquer the city. They went and took over the city and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went up against the Canaanites who now lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai, Ahiman, and Daimai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captured it, I will give him Akash, my daughter, for a wife. And Athaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Akash, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have sent me into the land of the Negev, this is a, a waterless land, okay? Now give me the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. Now notice, these are Moses' father-in-law. These are his in-laws. They are Kenites. They didn't settle among the people of Israel. They settled among the people of the land. Interesting. Interesting that they never wanted, with their first opportunity to be separate, they go separate from the people of Israel. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephah and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So sometimes you run up against technological advances that your enemies have, and it's hard to beat them. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove off the three sons of Anak. These are the giants. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now later, the Jebusites drove the Benjaminites out of Jerusalem. Now that is fascinating to me. They conquer the city, they burn it, but they don't drive out the inhabitants. 
Benjamin shares the city with them rather than drive them out like God had commanded. Later, the Jebusites take back over the city, and it takes David hundreds of years later to drive them out and build the temple. Now, Jerusalem, you have to remember, is the place that God would choose for the temple. And if you, if you look at Jerusalem from the sky, the ancient city, it's, it's shaped like a shema, okay? It's, it's, the, it's the letter that means, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one God. I mean, it's everything about this city, this is God. This is where God will put his throne. This is where Melchizedek, the pre-incarnate Christ, the king of ancient Jerusalem lived. This is where Abraham offered to sacrifice his one son, his only son, Isaac. This is, a, this is the place that God chose. And they've captured it. They've burned it to the ground. But they didn't drive out the inhabitants. So the inhabitants shared the rebuilt city with the Benjaminites and later drove the Benjaminites out. Verse 22. Now, now, folks, one of the things I want you to see here is the devil never wants God's throne to be established. You, you just need to get a hold of that. God was going to put his throne in Jerusalem. Satan knew that this was a sacred place. This, this is Mount Moriah. This is where it is said, this is where it said, Jehovah, on the Mount of God it shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh is a place. It is not a name, just a name of God or person. It's a place on the mount of God it shall be provided. There's so much about this. It's just don't even dare get into the preaching of it. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with him. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. So he showed them a way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, and they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city called, and called the name Luz, and that is his name to this day. So there's a new Luz, and there's the old Luz. Old Luz is what we call Bethel today. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages. Now notice, here's Bethshean. Here's this place we always go to every year. Or the inhabitants of Deor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium. Now notice, if they had driven this out, Bethshean would have never become one of these horribly place, horrible places of corruption. The place where Saul and his son Jonathan were hung on the walls. Okay, I mean, this was, was one of the great heathen cities that still occupied the land of Israel. And here's the, here's the beginning of the story. They did not drive out the inhabitants. This, was, this is the area of Manasseh. Continuing verse 29, verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites into forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. God never said that. God never said to make a pact with these people, just like with the Gibeonites. God never said that. He said, you're to drive these people out. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kethron, nor the inhabitants of Naholo. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akol, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahab, or of Akleb, or of Hebna, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So notice, the Asherites, this is the tribe of Asher. 
They just chose to live among these people rather than drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anan, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Hare, in Ajalon, and in Shabrim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the board of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akramim to Sila and upward. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now you see something absolutely fascinating beginning to take place. Now the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to book him. Now, what was Jesus doing at Gilgal? Well, that's a whole other sermon in itself. And he said, I, now notice, this is God. This is not just some silly little angel. This is not a seraphim or a cherubim or whatever. This is, this is God. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land. I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them up before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now notice, all the failures of chapter 1, we now see the consequences of those failures. And it's one of those questions that I ask myself, what could have been? If Israel had continued to fight together as a united army rather than break up in all their little things, if Israel had continued to fight together as a united army, how much more territory would they have taken? As we start branch churches, here's a lesson to remember. Because we've done it the wrong way. Every little branch goes its own way, does their own thing, does whatever they want. And there's no loyalty between the branches or to the mother church. We will stay together as one fighting unit. Now, this is one of the things I've seen in Ghana. They all stay together as one fighting unit. No one is left to conquer the battle on their own. They get ready to open a new church in an area. Everybody works together to open that new church, build the buildings, buy the land. This is what we will continue to do. If Israel had fought together in chapter 1, you would not have had God rebuking them in chapter 2. That was their choice. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. They just divided up. Didn't Well, okay, we don't have to work together anymore. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, there's a truth there. In the presence of a strong leader, and you're going to see this throughout the book of Judges, in the presence of a strong leader, people follow God. But when there is no strong leader, everybody just goes and does their own thing, and everybody's voice is listened to, and everybody goes their own way, and you have trouble. So as long as there was a strong leader who really knew the works of God, or even the generation that had walked with them, 
It's amazing how people stay together and follow God. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. Now, God said, if you, if you let these people stay, they're going to become a snare to you. Their gods will become a snare. And they did. And they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Now notice, there's always consequences for your bad decisions, and you can't blame God for it. God warns us, this will happen, these will be the consequences, but if you still make the decision, then I'm sorry, the consequences come. Then the Lord raised up judges. Now we see a theme that's going to continue for the rest of this book. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored with other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods who served them and bowed down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my commandment, or my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Again, consequences. But now the principle I want you to see that's going to follow us through the rest of the book of Judges is this. There is a roller coaster of spirituality. The people of Israel went into sin. The hand of God lifted off of them. Their enemies began to destroy them and conquer them. In their misery and pain and failure, they cried out to God. God's heart is touched. God raises up a leader. That leader challenges the people to follow God and to serve God. God gives them victory. As long as that leader is alive, he's holding the people to following God. But when the leader dies, they go right back into their sin again. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. My friends, in this world today, when people mock strong leadership, strong spiritual leadership, understand strong spiritual leadership is what keeps people following God. We'll see you tonight, 7 o'clock.